The following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of September 19th, 2022. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the NBA's decision to ban Suns owner Robert Sarver for one year and why LeBron James, Chris Paul, and a whole lot more people are speaking out against it. We'll also discuss the mind-boggling decisions by Nathaniel Hackett in his first two games as the head coach of the Denver Broncos. And finally, we'll speak with Olympic legend Mark Spitz, who's featured in the new documentary series 72, A Gathering of Champions, on the 50th anniversary of the 1972 Munich Games. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Two more episodes to go in our season on 1986. Also here is The New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham, who is no doubt still reeling from the trauma inflicted upon him during last week's Afterball. Have you been consoling yourself on Ultimate Knicks? That was, uh, that was really, I mean, there, there are rules by which I could like, I, may, I might have cause to sue, but it was, um, it was pretty rough. And I just want to thank you again for that. <laughs> you deserved it. <laughs> you, needed, you needed the punishment. Thank you. Thank you. Um, also with us from the West Coast, back after taking some well-deserved time to reminisce about his childhood sports triumphs, it is our friend and colleague, Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. Hey, what's up? I actually met a guy last week who was the top 80-meter hurdler when he was 12 years old last week. <laughs> that's, that's a fake-ass distance. I, I didn't even know that they only ran 80 meters, but apparently they were doing that when he was coming up, which would have been, I guess, about 10 years ago. So, mm-hmm. um, so I mean, obviously there's a lot of people out there with, an, you know, their own youth accomplishments, and I just have to be a little bit more self-aware. Do you all have any youth accomplishments on the level of that that you think meet that standard? Uh, they weren't they weren't doing records for uh, Glee Club second bases when I was there, so if it was... <laughs> That would that would have been it. I think I could have made I could have made a name for myself, but it was you know such is our culture. <laughs> I, had a, I had a grand slam to win a um, little league game once. I don't know. Oh, if really? like, I don't know if that might be the only time that's ever happened in, that's in America, but probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of things we'd want to promote: Joel's episode one year about um, Indianola, Mississippi. Hope everybody's listened to that now. But um, if you haven't. You should. And we're going to get Joel to talk about it a little bit, I think, on next week's show, if uh, mm-hmm. if you'll allow that, Joel. Um, yeah. And Stefan is out today, but he and I recorded that interview with Mark Spitz. So you'll hear him later in the show and in our Slate Plus segment this week. Um, we'll have more with that conversation with Stefan and uh, Mark Spitz and I. And we'll talk about Winning seven gold medals in an Olympics, kind of impressive. Not as impressive as what Joel did when he was a kid, but like pretty good feat by Mark Spitz. I actually got a little <laughs> bit of beef because Mark Spitz was a name that you heard a lot about when I was a kid. Um, he's still sort of famous to me. It's like reinviting the Harlem Globetrotters on. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little sad that I missed it, but maybe he and I can talk about our accomplishments in some other venue. We'll set that up 
And if you want to hear that whole uh, conversation with Mart Spitz, you need to be a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments on this show and other Slate podcasts. You get ad-free shows. You get a lot of stuff uh, to join. Go to slate.com slash hangupplus. Last November, ESPN's Baxter Holmes published a long investigative piece on Phoenix Suns and Phoenix Mercury owner Robert Sarver. That story included extensive allegations of racism and misogyny based on interviews with more than 70 former and current Suns employees. After it came out, the NBA commissioned an independent investigation of Sarver. And now, almost a year later, that investigation finally got released. The results are pretty much the same thing that Holmes (laughs) reported in 2021, that Sarver's conduct included the use of racially insensitive language, unequal treatment of female employees, sex-related statements and conduct, and harsh treatment of employees that on occasion constituted bullying. I'm quoting from the report there. To get more specific, he said the N-word at least five times in repeating or purporting to repeat what a black person said, (laughs) told a pregnant employee that she couldn't do her job when she became a mother, and made crude jokes about the physical appearance and bodies of female employees. When the NBA released that report, Commissioner Adam Silver also announced Sarver's punishment, a one-year suspension and a $10 million fine, no lifetime ban, no attempt to make him sell the team. LeBron James, not pleased. He tweeted, our league definitely got this wrong, and there is no place in this league for that kind of behavior. And Chris Paul, current member of the Suns, former president of the Players Association, he wrote, I'm of the view that the sanctions fell short in truly addressing what we can all agree was atrocious behavior. Vincent, what do you make of the report and of the response to Sarver's punishment? Um, it It's... Uh such a, a rich text, almost literally. I mean, I've read the actual uh, law firm produced report that the NBA put out about 40 something pages. And there's a uh, there's a, a fresh intrigue on each page. Um, there's a the strange thing with Sarver that's very similar um, to Donald Sterling, who was uh, kicked out of or forced out of his ownership of the Los Angeles Clippers infamously um, in that there's this just a, a sort of cartoon aspect of it that makes it some of the aspects just like almost comic. Um, the, the five N words thing is just, it's pretty precious to me. First of all, just like some rough tabletop math puts that at $2 million was his fine per N word. I mean, I hope he, I hope each one of them really t- tingled in his mouth. I hope he loved them all. Um, and then there are moments where the, so for example, um, the, the report wasn't able to substantiate, um, the ESPN report that, um, uh, when he was sort of arguing, when Sarver was arguing for Lindsay Hunter to be named the coach of the sons he said you know these n-words need an n-word an amazingly dense little passage there and i'm wondering does that count for one n-word in, in this five scheme or is that two how, how are we counting well um, substantiated so that would have yeah. been six and that would have been six and seven i think six that, is su- that is such an important uh, statement for the culture by the way that it's that is one of the most amazing quotes i've ever heard in my life but it's yes. so good it's like it's like it's like DEI gone wrong. It's like whatever you think. It's just the, it's the worst thing ever. But, um, less humorously though, it's like, and I, I, I was thinking about this because of, um, you know, the Las Vegas Aces coach Becky Hammond, who's a, a great basketball mind and 
spent a long time being a, an assistant coach in the NBA at the San Antonio Spurs. And after not becoming a head coach, went to the WNBA and immediately <laughs> won the whole thing. Um, some of the stuff around gender, I think, gets a little bit pushed under the table is how awful he was to the women in that organization from, you know, calling professional women girls to making fun of people for crying, all kinds of things. Um, I think the biggest takeaway was how inhospitable certainly this organization, but perhaps the league still is to women um, in, in the culture of the WNBA uh, culture of, excuse me, the NBA. Uh, and it was just that was sad because it just shows how how much talent obviously is going to waste under um, some of these systems. And I, of course, agree that he should just be gone. Uh, it's a it's just a little crack in the armor of NBA as like, you know, the progressive league kind of shows a little bit. I think um, it's interesting that Chris Paul, in his statement, made note of the sexism and the misogyny. Um, you know, uh, in his official statement, you know, where he, you know, basically said, "Hey, this is unacceptable behavior." Um, of course, Chris Paul is the point guard for the Phoenix Suns and has been for the past couple of years. Um, and I think there are a couple of reasons why he brought up the gender piece of it. One, I think that like. Selling people on racism is a hard sell in this country, like no matter what right now. Um, it's really hard to sustain. It's really hard to get a lot of energy behind people to get upset <laughs> around that sort of stuff. Um, but second, like to your point, Vincent, I think that um, if we're talking about the league being more accepting, being more welcoming to women, and it continually gets lost that, no, oh, this sort of stuff is going on. I mean, not, not just that. I mean, you think about the allegations that were made against the Dallas Mavericks within the last few years. Right, right. Um, you put, you put that sort of stuff together and it kind of shows you the, the hostile environment that women are facing when they go into this league it, where they try to work pretty much at any level. Right. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that the, the, the CP3 brought that up and, and, and made sure to note that, um, even above the, the the allegations of racism. But, I mean, just backing out for a second, um, I mean, I think it's obvious that one, year's and one year and $10 million aren't a sufficient punishment, but that Adam Silver, in some ways, has his hands tied here. And in some ways, I feel like he's kicking it forward to the players and the minority owners and the sponsors. He's saying, you guys have got to do the job because, you know, Adam Silver works for Robert Sarver and the other Robert Sarvers in the NBA there's only there's only so much he's going to be able to do. And for anybody hoping that Robert Sarver is going to be chastened or, you know, suffer some fate, you know, ill fate out of this, there's just no real justice. There's no real way to hold billionaires accountable in this league or in this country. The laws and the social norms don't really apply to them if they don't want them to. And I mean, Robert Sarver, like either he'll hold on to the team in spite of these allegations in this investigation or he'll be forced to sell, it will likely be a tremendous, tremendous benefit to him. It's going to be a tremendous windfall if, if the Phoenix Suns go on the open market. So, um, I, you know, coming out of this, I just thought, well, we're kind of where we were when this started in the first place, right? The other Robert Sarvers in the NBA is like a really smart way to put it, a very apt mm -hmm. phrase. And it was interesting to see Adam Silver put in the position of being a sports commissioner, like he doing the like Roger Goodell, Rob Manfred thing of standing up in front of a group of media in front of his own players and saying the thing that 
he says as someone who works for owners, as opposed to saying the thing that he says where he gets to be credited as a progressive champion and like a, an American hero, um, because that's a lot of what the job is of, of being an NBA commissioner. And we can blame Silver for having a bad press conference, um, which he did. But hmm. I think we can also say, as you did, Joel, that like this is just the job of like being the person that gets hated so the other owners can dodge accountability and responsibility. And Ray Ratto and Defector had a really good history um, kind of reminder of how the Sterling thing played out, which is that there was a corporate sponsor kind of revolt and the other owners, the other Robert Sarvers, the other Donald Sterlings <laughs> were like, yeah, this guy's bad for business. We got to get him out of here. And then the, Sterling's wife, Shelly, managed to wrestle away control of the team and it was sold without um, the league basically telling him he had to sell the, sell the the team. And so there is a mechanism. Silver isn't powerless. The other owners aren't powerless. They could get rid of Robert Sarver. Um, Adam Silver in his press conference was basically said the phrase, what it would take to remove that team from the control is a very involved process. You can just imagine being like, you're not going to make me have to do this. Are you? Come on. It would be really it's gonna hard. Be, it's going to be yeah. so hard. It's going to be so hard. But like, so we've seen the Jersey patch sponsor PayPal say, we're a progressive organization. And if Robert Sarver comes back, we will not sponsor um, you know, the patch on the Jersey anymore. And so that's one, I guess that's one crack potentially. Vincent, you've got, yeah. you know, LeBron and, and Chris Paul, you've got the head of the Players Association, you've got another um, son's owner, a minority owner, um, saying the server should be out. So um, it, it, it is the situ situation where it, 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 it genuinely doesn't seem clear how this is going to go and how this is going to play out. But I guess the last thing I would say is like, you know, Joel, you said there's not much of an appetite to punish racism. Well, like if there's a video like there was in, in the, the Sterling case, if there's an audio clip or a video clip, but there's like nothing here. Like the whole the smoking gun here is the entire report. But in this like culture of like we only think that something is real if we can listen to it, there's there's nothing of him on tape, at least so far. Mm -hmm. There's nothing on tape. And it like I did just put Sarver in the in the in the in that same category um with sterling but the fact is though that you know he was saying like the stuff about like aids and 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 the things he said about magic johnson are so far out there that i think that the owners could reasonably say i haven't said anything like that you know like and create some mental distance between themselves and sterling where this is like and this has been, I think, one of the great sort of ambiguities and difficulties of the Me Too moment that we like we we got into this space where people could plausibly say, well, no, that's just an asshole boss. That's not abuse, even though it in meant in 90 percent of the, the cases, actually, it's abuse. Right. This was also the thing with Scott Rutan and others like that. Right. Um, and I think that this behavior is much closer to what you see in many corporate environments, not to mention NBA uh, headquarters or whatever. Um, I think that the reason we don't see as much of a sort of that dominoes falling is that if they set a precedent that being um, a huge asshole is a fireball offense or a not owning a team offense, whatever you want to call it, um, I think you'd see a lot more reports like this come out. I'm looking at you, James Dolan. 
Like, I know that that guy has done many of these <laughs> things. There's no question. All right. Um, in between gigs of his blues band or whatever. Um, and so I think allegedly, that, allegedly, uh, <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, it's not, I don't know. It's not even alleged. It's just, you know, notionally. Um, I think that this sort of slightly thicker wall of solidarity that we see on the corporate side in terms of sponsors, but also within the NBA has something to do with like getting closer to just like what it means to often in America be a boss. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I was thinking about this because some people might ask Sarver why he persists in the face of this sort of public outcry, right? Um, obviously his own players, a league that is 75 to 80% black, a lot of fans, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons for him to not want to show his face in public again on the sidelines or in a booth as the Phoenix Suns owner. But I think he's learned a lot about the American public over the past few years, like a lot of us have. Um, and that there's not much in the way of bigoted behavior to your point about me too, Vincent, that won't be excused if not outright forgiven given enough time. And I just think about, okay, well, you know, the, the needle started moving around birtherism and then Trump got elected in 2016. And then there's this distracted, overwhelmed media climate. And then people had a chance to see the backlash to the George Floyd reckoning of 2020. And Robert Sarver probably, uh, you know, understandably is like, people don't actually give a shit about this. If I can, I can wait it out. You know, I don't have to step down. Um, and a lot of the owners probably likely feel the same way. They're just like, hey, we know that this, we all know that this is lip service, right? <laughs> like, you know, uh, nobody, nobody is going to really hold us accountable if we don't want to hold ourselves accountable. We can sort of wait it out. Um, but I also think about, you know, the, the comparison to Donald Sterling and Donald Sterling was like a truly repugnant figure in the NBA for a very long time. And the other piece of it is that he was a terrible, like, I mean, he engaged in like some of the worst housing discrimination um, in this country, some of the worst documented. And, and so I was wondering about what's going to come out, if anything comes out, about Robert Sarver as a businessman, right? Because obviously he's not drawing these lines. He's like, well, I got to straighten up, you know, I've got to straighten up when I go back to my real job. But when I go to the to the arena, I, I can just let it loose. And so, you know, I did briefly Google uh, one of the companies he owns, Southwest Value Partners, a real estate investment company. And the first thing you see if you Google that in racism is a Ben Crump, <laughs> the attorney, the civil rights attorney, Ben Crump tweet talking about how they're going to sue that company due to the because that company discriminated allegedly due to the race of their clientele by refusing to allow events and get togethers at their properties that they believed would be attended by African-Americans and other people of color. Right. So, you know, Robert Sarvers is pretty much being a chaos agent, no matter where he's stepping. And he absolutely has the right to believe that I'm bulletproof, man. Nothing's going to happen to me unless I wanted to. And if I wanted to, when it's time to sell the Phoenix Suns, I'm going to probably make about, you know, four or five billion dollars. And that, that'll, that'll come out ahead. So, um, I just, yeah, I just don't know how you hold these guys accountable anymore if they don't want to be. Um, and, and maybe LeBron and Chris Paul know something that we don't, but I just, I'm, I guess I'm really cynical about what the NBA can do, what Adam Silver can do and what's going to happen next. I didn't remember until I was going back and reading some of the Sterling coverage that after the Sterling videos and whatnot came out, the then majority owner of the Atlanta Hawks, Bruce Levinson, 
told on himself and told and told the NBA <laughs> that he had sent this email complaining about how many black people went to Atlanta Hawks games. Mm. And um, it was like a very comprehensive email about like how it was hurting. <laughs> it was hurting the team financially that they didn't That's have so their white season holders. Hate, this kind of hate is so funny, by the way. I mean, it's oh just, I mean, it's, <laughs> so too many black people black in people Atlanta is in Atlanta. nuts. Right. That is that <laughs> is so game. funny. That is great. Um, right. <laughs> conceded that that is funny but he the thing that's like not surprising is that he sent the email the thing that's surprising is that he like told the nba like hey i sent this email i'm gonna sell the team now um and it just does make you wonder how many of these emails are floating around by people who are not telling on themselves and the thing that it all of this makes me think about is the nfl and dan snyder let's compare and contrast Mm -hmm. those two situations so Snyder, uh, the the team was fined ten million dollars, same mm-hmm. fine yeah. by um, little pocket Roger change. Little yeah, pocket change. which makes me wonder. It's like I don't know if I don't know if Joel, you'll, th- this isn't an issue for you uh, yet, but maybe in a couple of years, you got to like talk to other parents. And be like, what's the rate for the tooth fairy these days? Is like one <laughs> fifty cents a dollar? <laughs> like I wonder if like they're like, all right, is it ten million? Is it fifteen million? Anyway, so, so so we got the same the same fine. The investigation, kind of famously, the NFL commissions this investigation, and then refused to say what was in it. No. Like, didn't even issue any kind of report. And so, I guess the NBA gets a plus one there for being slightly better. And then Snyder was told to, I guess, step away from the team for a little while. His wife took over. Um, kind of has refused to you know, respond to subpoenas and has been on, been on his yacht and everything. But the thing that I think, I don't know if it's telling, but it is a a very noticeable difference is that throughout his entire tenure, you haven't really heard any current or former players really saying much Mm. about Dan Snyder. And I think in the NBA, like we care what LeBron and Chris Paul say, the players are more famous Except, I guess, for quarterbacks in the NFL, the players are more uh, socially conscious. I would say, probably as a group. Mm. Um, and Re- so, mm. I just, man, I don't know about that, but I, I hear you on that. Um, and, and so, and and I don't want to compare. I don't. I don't feel like I'm capable to compare um, the the owners in the NBA and the NFL to say one group is more progressive than, than the other or, or whatever. But like I do, it does feel at least more possible that something will happen mm-hmm. with Sarver than with Dan Snyder. Like the Snyder thing just seems like it's totally off the table. It's intractable. Yeah. They're, they're at a standstill basically and waiting for him to have some, some shame about his game. And that's just, that's just apparently not going to happen. We'll, we'll wait a minute then. What do you all think will happen? You know, well, the the thing that I was wondering, I mean, I think that if this is going to happen, it's going to have to be through a certain, to, to Josh's point, concerted effort by the players. And if you remember, there was a moment. Which seems to be happening. I mean, the right. head of the Players Association put right. out an extremely strong statement saying this guy needs to be banned. Right. And, I, and that was great. I totally applaud that. There was a moment after the whole Sterling thing happened. I don't know you guys remember, like, there was a game that the Clippers were not going to play. They were they were uh, right. they were ready to strike uh, for a game, and then all these things happened, and it be- became clear that he was going to be removed, and they ended up playing that game. 
And then, of course, during the NBA bubble, as we call it, there was um, the wildcat strike that happened at the behest of the Milwaukee Bucks around the shooting of um, and of Jake, Jacob Blake. And I do just wonder if there will come a point at the beginning of the season, whether especially Chris Paul, given all that we know that he represents in terms of the union and whatever esteem he has uh, among the players, whether they'll decide not to play a game or say or, or 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 hang that out there as the season starts to approach. I think we're, you know, just about a month out. So that's what I would look for. I'm going to give a very specific uh, prediction here and we can revisit it, uh, you know, months later or whatever. I think that what is going to happen is that sponsors are going to pull out. The players are going to threaten to strike, possibly. Or there's going to be a lot of push behind the scenes with the players and sponsors combined and owners that will compel Robert Sarver to sell to Bob Iger, who is CP3's good friend and mentor. And you can Google that story if you'd like. Or I guess that is a very specific prediction. It's a very, very specific prediction. Bob Iger, former CEO of Disney, who identified as a Democrat until 2016 and now went, now identifies as independent, which I mean, I would love to know what happened in 2016 that made him <laughs> want to go independent. But anyway, um, possibly another Robert Sarver, who knows? But um, I think that that is specifically what is going to happen. And we can circle back on that and check and see if I was right or wrong. I like that. No evidence that we know of that that guy's a Robert Sarver so far. So okay, far. yeah, sorry. Alleged, can I say, is allegedly cover it then? Yeah. I don't know if allegedly covers it, if there's no allegation. <laughs> right, okay, well, he's probably not a Robert Sarver, who knows? <laughs> Up next, the mind-boggling decisions of Denver Broncos coach Nathaniel Hackett. In the third quarter of a game Sunday that the Houston Texans were leading 9-6, to the Denver Broncos embarked on a series of downs that should have been set to the Benny Hill theme song. The kids still know what the Benny Hill theme song is? I don't know. Um, but anyway, on third and one from the Houston 35, the Broncos ran six foot three, 255-pound reserve tight end Andrew Beck wide right. The CBS broadcast crew didn't approve, and if you listen close enough, you can hear the boos from the home crowd. I mean, you got Javante Williams, who's running for 6.7 yards per carry, and you hand it off to a guy for just the second time in his career, and now he's going to attempt a field goal with McManus. And the play clock is winding down quickly because there was some indecision again. Play clock at one. And a whistle. And what happened first? Delay a game or timeout? Delay a game. Wow. Offense. That's brutal. Five-yard penalty. Fourth down. That is absolutely brutal. <laughs> oh, that, that, that guy's getting uh, a little fed up with Nathaniel Hackett, like a lot of Broncos fans. But that delay of game penalty pushed the Broncos back five yards and out of field goal range. It was Denver's third delay of game penalty already this year, one more than all of last season. And in this game, it forced them to settle for a 32-yard punt. That goofy sequence summed up the rough start for new Broncos head coach Nathaniel Hackett, 
who nonetheless earned his first career victory as Denver pulled out a 16-9 win over the Texans. This all comes the week after Hackett faced heated criticism for attempting a 64-yard field goal instead of going for a fourth and five late in the Broncos' 17-16 loss at Seattle. So, Josh, football coaches are going to occasionally make bad decisions, even Brian Kelly or Dennis Allen. And we're going to talk about some of those later in this segment. But how bad does Hackett's game management look now that we're two games into his tenure? Bad enough that it's kind of become my obsession in the last week. I know we talked a little bit about coaching uh, calls and going for it or not going for it or whatever um, in last week's show. But then this Hackett thing happened on Monday Night Football and I just went totally crazy. I was like searching Twitter for his name. I was looking at the different analytics about how dumb it was. I mean, this just like seeped deep into my brain and activated some sort of like, uh, you know, neural pathway to know that I had. I am like totally fascinated by how dumb these these moves are. And also kind of whether just because it's so funny that we're like as a society being unfair to him. But like, Joel, um, the sequence that you described was the most egregious in the week two game. But also Roger Sherman in the ringer. Um, had a good summary of everything that happened in that game. At the end of the first half, and this is from his piece, the Broncos were on the goal line with all of their timeouts remaining. Hackett was indecisive about whether to go for it and wasted enough time that the play clock expired. Now facing fourth and sixth, the decision was made for him as Denver settled for the field goal. And then also in the second half, the Broncos and Hackett burned two second half timeouts, one because the team forgot to send a punt returner on the field and one because, again, the play clock was about to expire. Um, and let's just for for people that don't don't know, let's explain what happened with the field goal on uh, Monday Night Football. Bill Barnwell had a um, summary of this. Um, there's a, a little bit more than a minute left. Um, it was on the 46-yard line, fourth and five. They let 39 seconds run off the clock, first of all. That was the first mistake. Mm. Then they took a timeout. Then they attempted a 64-yard field goal <laughs> instead of allowing Russell Wilson to try to complete. I mean, and there's so many different st- statistics here, but the one that I think kind of sums it up, Vincent, is that there have been two 64-yard-plus field goals made in, like, the entire history of the National Football <laughs> League. And last year, fourth and five was converted 50% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good, and it's so funny. It's weird, though, because, like, one of the great complaints, and I think it's mostly reasonable about sports generally these days, is that they become too regularized, like, too too efficient in quotes, too machine-like that if anything, it's that, you know, people are too conservative and they don't make weird, wacky decisions. But for some reason, this persists in football coaching, right? And, and you would think that football would be the most regularized. It's like a sort of, we think of it as this great, like analogy for a sort of martial thinking and strategic, uh, thinking some reason it's impervious. So, so I'm right now I'm just thanking Haggett for just being the kind of guy that we can outwardly making fun of. It, it's like, a, it's a great way to check in with the season. Um, I, I'm also high off of the Jets win this week. So I'm in a, in finally in a place to make fun of someone else. Um, it's, it's strange though that, you know, we're in this moment of like quarterback play, which we think of like 
as being the sort of second to the coach in some ways in the hierarchy of, I don't know, football brain matter or whatever. This moment when quarterback play has gone up and up in terms of its esteem and even the sort of mid-level quarterbacks are we think of as these incredibly like sub-CEO uh, thinkers in some way. But coaching does not seem subject to the same logic. Like, is there a rule change we can get to help the coaches? <laughs> well, I mean, the one thing I think about, too, is that um, there's been this trend towards the boy genius coach, you know, the Mike McDaniel, um, Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan. Um, also, with the exception of McDaniel, and maybe I had this wrong, all those guys had dads or, uh, right. you know, men that got them into the game. So there's right. this belief that coaching has improved because these are, you know, the type of guys that may have not gone into coaching before. Maybe they would have gone into become an attorney or a data analyst. And, you know, the, the narrative around Nathaniel Hackett was that, well, he was such a great student. I mean, he was going to go into, you know, he was a, he took biology and chemistry and we thought he was going to be a doctor, but instead he became football where he brought his intelligence <laughs> to the game. Right. Um, and what I think of Nathaniel Hackett is that how is it that I'm just now learning that Paul Hackett had a son in coaching? I just would have figured that that would have come up a long time ago. Um, I mean, before the hiring, right? Like I just did not, that's not a guy who had the reputation of a Kyle Shanahan even. Right. Um, and, and when he ended up at Denver, the hope was that, you know, Aaron Rodgers was going to sign there, that he'd worked with, he'd worked in Green Bay and that that was Aaron Rodgers' guy. Then Aaron Rodgers didn't come. And so as I'm putting all this together, I'm like, well, shit, did Aaron Rodgers know something about Nathaniel Hackett and putting his career in his hands that Russell Wilson didn't know? Um, because it was kind of an upset that Aaron Rodgers ended back up in Green Bay. And, you know, judging from the disgust that he, he's showing with the people that he's around, um, you know, you would have thought that he would have left, but he stayed there. And then all of a sudden they ended up with Russell Wilson. And I just, I can't help but think that, you know, people have known, you know, the, the people that were closest knew, maybe this is not the dude, but he still got the opportunity anyway because of his, you know, that last name will go a long way in, in football coaching. Um, it almost, it almost sort of barely matters. I mean, all, all it seems like all the Bilicek's kids are like on his staff right now too. You know what I mean? Kirk Ferentz is, you know, son at University of Iowa is coaching some of the worst offenses in modern football history, and they still get to do it. So, you know, Nathaniel Hackett is just getting his chance to cycle through. And, you know, we'll, he, he's showing us uh, possibly why Aaron Rodgers just thought, you know what, let me just throw through some rookies uh, for, the, for one of the last years of my career instead of following that guy. So immediately after the field goal attempt on Monday Night Football, Karen J. Phillips tweeted, Brian Flores' lawsuit should be won just off of what Nathaniel Hackett just did. Uh, good tweet. Um, a good tweet. So I, I think what a lot of the reaction from Broncos fans is, and we, we haven't mentioned, amazing, amazing kind of crowd moment in that game on Sunday when Broncos fans collectively as a group started calling out the play clock as it was winding down to quote unquote help the team and I guess maybe kind of mildly or not so mildly troll the coach. But the thing that, that I think we're all reacting to is that this wasn't just an example of a bad decision that was being made. It's that he doesn't seem to know what to do. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a part of the job. And, and this is the case in a lot of jobs is 
I guess kind of fake it till you make it. I mean, you'd hope that they didn't have to fake it, but you need to project confidence and for your team, for the people that care about the team, um, maybe for yourself, but just to kind of stand there and not do anything. I mean, it reminds me a lot of, of what Les Miles did mm. at, at LSU when a lot of times the clock would just run down and everybody would be looking around like, what the hell is happening? Like we need somebody to, to call and call the play or just make a decision, even if it's the wrong decision. Do you remember when Jerry Tarkanian coached the San Antonio Spurs uh, briefly in the 90s? And yeah. they told him that like he did not know how to call timeouts. I think that he, <laughs> there was like a few games where he was confused about them, the number of timeouts and how he could use them. And that actually is what it reminds me of. I'm like, how could you have gotten this far in the game, you had a whole off season to f- familiarize yourself with your that particular job. Also, your dad has done this job. How do you not know? How how can you look this clueless? Like it sort of undercuts the whole idea that um, working for your father ha- that you got that you get some sort of special experience or special knowledge base by being around the game your entire life. Um, a couple other things I wanted to to mention that I I think people are responding to is that. Well, first of all, on the field goal, he mm-hmm. said afterwards, we our target was the 46-yard line. So it's like, why would yeah. that be your target? What? And also, he's what? he's acting like he's playing a video game and like he gets that that's like some sort of save point in the game or something. It's like 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 getting to the 46 was actually some kind of victory. It was, it was very <laughs> weird. And he wouldn't explain why they had come up with like our target line is a place that like Almost literally no one has ever made a field goal from in the entire history of the sport. Like, that's where we want to get to. So <laughs> he was claiming that there was like some sort of process reason for it. And then immediately after the game, he said, you know, in, in a kind of coach speaky way, I have confidence in him. Speaking of the kicker, if we have to put him in that situation again, I think he'll be able to make it. Then the day after, and this is another reason why I wanted to do this segment. This has been widely misreported, what he said, because all the headlines, and you guys probably saw this, were like, Nathaniel Hackett says he regrets the decision. Yeah, it made him sound very mature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is not at all what happened. He says, looking back at it, we definitely should have gone for it. Okay. And then he says, um, it's one of those things where you look back at it and you say, of course we should go for it. We missed the field goal. He's not <laughs> saying that they that they should have that they should have gone for it because he screwed up and and had the process wrong. He's saying like, oh yeah, like when you miss a when you when the thing goes the wrong way, of course you should have done the other thing. And so the fact that that was his lesson that he took away from this is so bizarre and actually more concerning to me than anything that happened in the game because I think a thing we need to acknowledge it must be extremely stressful. Your mm-hmm. first game as a coach um, to make this kind of decision, I can understand maybe feeling overwhelmed. Maybe his mind went blank. I don't know what happened. Um, well, can I ask you all a question? Look, you know, we're, we're saying he's making bad decisions. He's got confidence in the kicker. Is it possible that he didn't have po- confidence in Russell Wilson or the offense to make five? Like, it, it, he has that little faith in Russell Wilson and that offense, and he doesn't want to say it. I'm, I'm, I'm not really trying to give him an out here, but do you think that's possible? That was my thought. That was my takeaway from the Monday Night Football game, which uh, 
And that was a lot of the response. Was right. like, you paid this guy more than $200 million. Right. So you got to, <laughs> I was got to give it, give him the ball. Exactly. Give Russ, let, let Russ cook. If you watched, <laughs> if you watched that game on the, on the ESPN two uh, Manning cast, as it's called, that's mm-hmm. what Shannon Sharp was saying. That's, and, and so that was like a, a, a reasonable takeaway from, but now seeing this other bizarre <laughs> third down, now it's like, oh, maybe this guy is just sort of got the coaching yips or something like that. It's hard to, it's hard to even, take one strain of meaning from these things that seem just like, you know, it, it also just argues against the idea of like, oh, I'm a football genius as a reason to be a coach. You can be in your house or even like whisper to a guy like Aaron uh, Rodgers and like say interesting things and be helpful or give insights. But like this job, that's basically a managerial job. That's about being clear headed and taking the right advice at the right moment. Mm-hmm. You can be as smart, mm-hmm quote unquote, as you want to be. And it just doesn't mean anything if you do weird things under pressure, you know? Um, so it's, it's an interesting sort of demystification moment of like, what does it actually mean to be a coach? You can be X's and O's, whatever, like Tex Winters was never a head coach in the NBA. He created the triangle offense. There's a reason that people have different roles. Yeah. I want to play actually this clip um, from the comedian Mitch Hedberg that I think is extremely <laughs> appropriate to this situation in ways that I will explain after we hear uh, the clip. So let's listen to that. When I was stand-up comedian, I got into comedy to do comedy, which is weird, I know. But when you're in Hollywood and you're a comedian, everybody wants you to do other things besides comedy. They say, all right, you're a stand-up comedian. Can you act? Can you write? Write us a script. They want me to do things that's related to comedy, but not comedy. That's not fair. <laughs> It's as though if I was a cook and I worked my ass off to become a good cook, they said, all right, you're a cook. Can you farm? (laughs) So Nathaniel Hackett is a cook who is being asked to farm. And (laughs) I think you did a really good job laying that out, Vincent. Being a coach, quote unquote, can mean like 800 different things. And this guy, maybe he's good at some of those things or things that we can't see, but there's no reason. It's like, you know, Joel, like in journalism, like people get promoted mm-hmm. to be or good at writing and get promoted to managing and they suck yep. at that, but they're great at writing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like this guy, there's no reason to think that this guy would be good at this aspect of the job. I don't think, or like, I don't know what the evidence would have been that he, that he would be. And so well, his dad was a coach. I mean, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> it's just that is Paul Hackett, he's, right? He's got a lot of mental, uh, mental reps here. Yeah. He's been around um, it. But I would recommend that everybody read, and we'll link to it on our show notes, this feature in The Athletic about Brandon Staley, the Chargers coach who's become famous for being aggressive on fourth down. And it's it's a very good look at what actually goes into those decisions. They have this entire team of people who um, are all kind of like on the headset. And before the drive, they make a decision if it's fourth and whatever it's we're going to go unless um, Staley says not to. And it's based on like this complex series of factors involving opponent, weather, everything. But Staley also talks about in a really smart way, like, yeah, process is kind of the most important thing. But as a coach, you need to look at results because you need to have the confidence of the team. Um, You need to, you know, that we can't just be kind of sitting here like doing math without having the team kind of buy into it. And so that's where you get to the like decision of not letting Russell Wilson in his first game 
after being your big free agent acquisition, go for it on fourth and five. When this is a guy who's kind of famous for like making stuff happen kind of in the clutch and and winning games late after maybe not being as successful earlier in the game. And so this was wrong on the math. It was wrong, I think, from a team building perspective and like a confidence inspiring perspective. And and yeah, again, Joel, that's like kind of why I want to talk about this. Just like the the many like degree, it's like a wrongness kind of souffle. And I just are we overreact like are we overreacting? Should we should we give this guy a chance to like it's only been two games? Well, right. These are incredibly stupid decisions that all happen early in his career, right? So it could color, you know, his career going forward. But I guess I would be willing to wait it out and see, you know what? The Broncos have a lot of talent. Russell Wilson is really good. Um, eventually, people will figure it out. I mean, you know, Barry Switzer got to be a Super Bowl champion. Um, so it's not like being bad as a head coach prevents you from having success as a head coach. Um, and so, you know, maybe this is a little early. Maybe he had the yips, as, as Vincent said, and he'll get it. But um, it, this is just a really bad start. And even like, even if they write the ship and get a little bit better. Those are two, these are like a series of fuck-ups that are really hard to overcome and to get out of people's heads. You know, you get to a point where the home crowd is counting out the play clock, which is something that, I've watched a lot of football. Has Have you ever heard of that happening before? I've never heard Maybe of it. was inspired by like the visiting fans counting during Giannis's free throws, like yeah. maybe it's a thing that will increasingly yeah. happen in other contexts. But no, I'd never heard that before. Yeah, I mean that's the first time I've ever heard of that in football, and so that's. Uh, I mean, you don't want that sort of. <laughs> I mean, unprecedented. It can be good or bad, but you just don't want that attached to your name uh, that early in your career. Uh, but you know, presumably, there was something that they liked about him. Um, you know, when the Denver Broncos hired him. Uh, and and maybe those traits will begin to come out uh, as we get a little further in the, in the season. Up next, Stefan and I speak with Olympic legend Mark Spitz, who's featured in the new documentary series, 72, a gathering of champions on the 50th anniversary of the 1972 Munich Games. Mark Spitz was supposed to dominate the 1968 Summer Olympics. The American swimmer was just 18, but he already held two world records. But in the pool in Mexico City, in his three individual events, Spitz finished for him a disappointing second, third, and dead last. Four years later, Spitz was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, Time, and Life magazines. His new mustache was a media sensation, and he planned to swim in seven events at the Games in Munich. The first was the 200-meter butterfly, his worst performance in 68. When I got to the actual starting block, it was just like a movie where I had a vision just for a flash of the pool in Mexico City. I mean, it was just stuff was just flashing one thing after another. Boom, 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 boom. I was saying, oh man, I'm having like nightmares of my lousy 200 meter butterfly race in Mexico City. 
remember the last 200 meters in the Olympic Games. Mark Spitz went into that as the favorite. He didn't get a place. And I said, no, I can't be here. I can't be in Mexico City. The man that, that is from the new four-part documentary series, 72, A Gathering of Champions, directed by our good friend Jonathan Hawk. The series brings Spitz and other stars, among them Olga Corbett, Dave Waddle, and Kip Kano, back to Munich to relive their performances at an Olympics overshadowed by the massacre of Israeli athletes by Palestinian terrorists. It's a very human and touching set of stories and remembrances, all in the words of the athletes, no talking heads or narrators. You can watch it now on olympics.com and it'll stream next month on Peacock. To talk about it, I am thrilled now to welcome from Los Angeles, Mark Spitz. Hey, Mark. How are you gentlemen doing? Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, No shade to any of the other athletes, but your episode, the only one devoted to a single athlete, resonated the most for me because in 1972, I was a nine-year-old sports nut glued to our new color television set, watching you win an unprecedented seven gold medals and set seven world records. For those who might know you as the guy before Michael Phelps, take us back 50 years to the pre-Olympics buildup and the expectations that led to that moment of panic on the starting blocks. Well, I think most of my panic was before I got to the starting box. It was, uh, you know, going to the Olympic trials in 1972 and remembering that four years before I was the world record holder in the 200 meter butterfly, which was the last event of Mexico City. I qualified first. And if I'd done even about two seconds slower in the finals, I would have won. But I went one step further. I got dead last. I think I was devastated um, because I had lost a 100-meter butterfly race, uh, which cost me not only the gold medal, but a place on the medley relay team, which then went on to win a gold medal. The critics considered me a failure uh, because I was the world record holder in two of the events, of which I had only got a second place finish in the butterfly event, the 100, and in the uh, 200 meters, I got eighth place. So, you know, certainly I had memories of that race. It's one of the more difficult races that I had as far as mental preparation, because it's not a race that you can swim easily. You just kind of go through the motions and the prelims. So I had to get through that. And I kept having these real visions of that. I was in Mexico City. I mean, I was going, this is, I'm in Munich in Germany and it's four years later. What should I be thinking about this for? But somehow your brain plays these tricks on you. They do that in the movies all the time. And it's actually because that's a human experience. It really does happen. So that's what was going through my mind. You know, I had to get myself out of that place. And so uh, once I brought myself to a place that I felt comfortable with, as I say in the documentary, to a cornfield where I practiced every day in the summer of 1972, where I had broken a world record in practice, I said, this is what I need to do. I need to be in that place at that time, at that moment. And that's what I did. Then obviously, then after that day, I came back out into the swimming pool and Munich became a familiar and a welcome place for me to be at the swimming pool. I'm curious what you think about either specifically in those Olympics or just more generally when you're actually in a race. I can understand being kind of lost in thoughts and getting deep inside your head on the starting blocks and the days and hours approaching this event that you've been training your whole life for. But um, in those Olympics, the longest you were in a pool in one race was a little bit over two minutes. Are you thinking about um, strategy? Are you thinking about I better not lose. Are you what what is going through your head in those laps and on those turns? Well, that's a very good question. And I've got 
certainly a, a very interesting answer to that. When it's becoming the end of your career, 14 years and 28,000 miles of training, that's what's going through my head in a flash. But it really can't be going through my head if I really want to do well. So I think most of the pre-planning and my strategy was done when I woke up in the morning, for an example, when I was going through warm-up. Uh, and interestingly enough, I had to really think about what I was going to swim for the day. I mean, most people who go to the Olympic Games, regardless of what their sport is, are usually in one event. And so it's quite obvious that when they get up in the morning and they prepare for the prelims, they know exactly what they're doing. In my case, I knew exactly what I was doing on the first day because I knew that was the event. But once I got through with the first day of events and I won actually two gold medals, uh, one in the uh, 200 meter butterfly and one in the relay competition, I had to get up the next day and say, well, what event is this? I mean, am I, am I warming up for the other three individual events or a couple of relays? So I really had to focus on the day and the event and the warm up. And even though my warm up was exactly the same all the time, regardless of the event, my brain had to actually get myself into that warm up and thinking about what I visualized that event would be like during the warm up. But that's about the only time I really thought about my strategies. I really sort of washed all that out. When you practice, it's about 80% physical and 20% mental when you're in training. And part of the 20% mental was to make sure you drove to the right location for the workout and the training. <laughs> but it's just flip-flop when you get to the Olympic Games. It's too late to train. I mean, and it's not about being physical. It's about 80 to 90% mental. I mean, you have to have your head screwed on correctly. And remember all those imprinting things that you've done before that you can remember success and what created your success. And I, that's why I brought myself back in my explanation of being at, at a cornfield, breaking a world record in that one event. So I don't think about much, to be honest with you, um, other than listening, listening to the starter's command and getting off to a good start. It's already so much imprinted and so many times I swam that same race over and over and over again. It's sort of like when you watch a tennis match. I mean, how do those guys know how to use a forehand or a backhand and how do they have to, and where do they want to put the ball on the court? I mean, they've just done it so many times. It just comes like almost instinctively. And I think that that's sort of the way I approach things. But anyway, so that's sort of a long answer. So what was I thinking? Not much and then everything. <laughs> and as as the the medals and the records began to build, go back into your brain then. In the in the in the documentary, we have this glimpse of you saying, you know, I didn't have time to think about what I had done because I'm off to the next event and to the next medal podium and to the next commitment. Um, but it must have been creeping up on you after three, four, five medals. So yeah, I mean, it it did sort of creep up on me a little bit, but I am a very good person at compartmentalizing what I need to do. Uh, it would serve me no purpose to worry about tomorrow's race because it would interfere with what I had to do at the moment. Um, so I try to be in the moment. Um, you hear athletes saying, you know, you have to be in the moment. Well, first of all, they're being told that by psychologists that have studied sports and analyzed the the success stories of many athletes over the last 20 or 30 years i came to the olympic games and there was no such thing as that there was an amateur sport i didn't come with my agent i didn't come with my attorney i didn't come with my trainers i didn't come with anybody other than myself you know and the shoes that i bought in a store i mean so nobody was giving me any free equipment so the fact is is that i think that there's more confusions to athletes today to prepare themselves in a situation and scenario so as the actual days wore on I use that as my momentum, kind of like a snowball that's sort of like hurling down the mountainside. It started to get larger, more powerful, and that powerful meaning that I became more confident. 
A lot of people that were swimming just one event and they were competing against me were wondering, well, did I train well enough? Did I train hard enough? Did I rest enough? Did I have a nice room? Is the food at the village good? Is this, I mean, they start wondering about all these other outside elements. Well, I didn't have to think like that. I knew that the food was good. I knew that I had a good room. Matter of fact, I had a single room <laughs> and I didn't have to worry about a bunch of people making a bunch of noise. Although as the actual days went on, this apartment units that we were in, a lot of the athletes in the swim team had already finished their competition and they were instructed very, very harshly, not because of me, but just because of out of respect to some of the athletes that basically were swimming on the very last day and they hadn't had their event yet to be quiet and observe that. So I had some great teammates that helped me, um, you know, get through that time. That's, you know, so that's sort of what was going through my whole eight days of competition. You bring up your shoes. There's a controversy that's elucidated in the documentary where during one of your medal ceremonies, you're holding this pair of shoes because you hadn't had time to put them on because the medal ceremony happened right after the race and you kind of lift them up um, as you wave to the crowd. And Avery Brundage of the IOC gives you a talking to and asks if you're doing some sort of guerrilla marketing campaign because there's this fetishization of amateurism in that moment. And you say in the documentary that you deserved the talking to or that you kind of ap appreciated having that that moment and and i guess my question is did you feel like the amateurization the the amateurism the values were good and you kind of wanted to embody them and respect them or was it more an issue of like you realized that you had broken the rules even if you didn't agree with the rules well first of all the rules aren't really specific. There's nothing in a set of rules in those days that say you can't hold up a pair of shoes or you can't hold up your towel or you can't wave to the crowd or anything like that. Um, it was known in the Olympics, at least that I was in in Mexico City, that several of the major companies like shoe manufacturing companies like Adidas were basically uh, providing uh, free equipment to the athletes, especially to a lot of third world nations that didn't have access to that equipment. And it was a great marketing ploy. And the uh, IOC obviously went along with that with the organizers of the Olympic Games in Mexico City. Well, that sort of was true to form in, in, uh, in Munich. Everybody was queued up at the Puma uh, store and at the uh, Adidas store. And um, so in, regardless of what sport you were in, you could get a free pair of shoes. And certainly I participated in that queue. But those were not the shoes that I wore. Those were my good luck shoes that I had purchased a couple of years before. And that's what I wore. And um, I didn't have time to basically uh, get fully... Uh, dressed up, you know, to get out there on the award stand. So they had these little boxes of our clothes, but they weren't as defined as they used to be where they could put it into the actual box at the beginning of the swimming race. But you had to pick up all that stuff yourself and then drag it away and then go to this area if you were a medal winner and then, you know, don the clothes again. Well, that wasn't going to happen that I could leave my shoes there without having them get, disappear. Because when I came back, there was another set of swimmers that were there and, and I, I didn't, you know, didn't want to lose my my favorite shoes. So I, I brought them to the award stand. And it was just a natural response to the, the roaring of the crowd to just acknowledge them. It was an innocent situation and scenario. Yeah, they look like Adidas. And, and I was wondering whether you had gotten a deal with them afterward, because today Adidas would have like taken a use that photo and put it on a poster and used you in a marketing campaign. Well, here's another thing too. see at that time, it was a pair of Adidas shoes and Adidas wasn't in the manufacturer of swimwear whatsoever. And certainly I wasn't that was a, a part of my uniform from a technical point of view. It wasn't something that I put on to swim with, you know. Um, so um, I, there was a lot of 
of things that this did never pointed into the direction that I had anything to do with Adidas. Now, after the fact, okay, I was approached by the guy that owned Adidas and said, you know, we'd like to now get into the swimsuit business. And I think you could be a great vehicle for us. And so what we did was we formed a partnership. I licensed my name. I did not endorse it. I own half the company. And we started a company called Arena Swimwear and it became the largest, uh, bigger than Speedo. So at the end of the day, I mean, it all worked out and I don't have any belief whatsoever and nor did they acknowledge the fact that those shoes and that incident sort of went sort of unknown, to be honest with you. I mean, these sort of this meeting with Avery Brunges was not publicized. Um, nobody picked up on it. Um, I think that after the fact, you know, when you see sort of documentaries or things that show me swimming in the past, some of these announcers are saying, yeah, you, you know, he could have been in trouble. You know, I can't believe he did that. But that's more for sensationalism, to be honest with you. Your last race occurred just a few hours before the Palestinian terrorists uh, breached the uh, Olympic compound. Um, you were out to dinner with a reporter from Sports Illustrated and some colleagues of his who had been covering you. You go back to the dorm. You had no idea what happened. In fact, you woke up the next morning still ignorant of the attack. Uh, the contemporaneous story that the SI reporter Jerry Kirschenbaum wrote from 1972, you're quoted saying, they'd just take me hostage. They wouldn't kill me, would they? Right after you found out about it. And then you weren't even briefed by the U.S. Olympic Committee um, before a previously scheduled news conference. Um, what were those hours like, Mark? Well, let me just uh, readdress the, uh, I don't want to call them lack of facts or lack of detail, but let me tell you how it really was. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a misinterpretation of the, of, of the information, to be honest with you. Uh, and that can actually be misinterpreted. Um, and I never felt that I needed to interpret anybody's take on what had taken place. But what really happened was this. Um, Jerry Kirschenbaum had followed my career and written many articles for Sports Illustrated over the last three years especially coming to Indiana University where I swam and um, we became very good friends. He being Jewish also of the Jewish faith um, and Heinz Klutmeyer, who was one of the premier photographers for Sports Illustrated. Uh, I was on the cover three times of Sports Illustrated. The first time Neil Leifert took a picture of me. He does that famous picture of Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston, um, you know, with his, his fist up, like, come on, get up. Um, and then Heinz with the others. Um, and, and the two of them had taken me out to dinner at the Olympic trials in Chicago. We had a great time. Uh, we'd been out to dinner before when they came to visit for a photo session and articles at Indiana University. So I was real familiar with their company and they were, was, I was very comfortable around them all the time. And, uh, so it was arranged that after my last event, we'd all go to dinner, just the two of us and, and myself. And so that's what we did. I don't think we got to, where we were supposed to be until probably nine or nine thirty at night. I thought for some reason my memory was that we got back in around midnight, but Jerry told me the other day that uh, we got back in around two o'clock in the morning. So I get up at around eight o'clock with the coach, coaching staff and the uh, USOC officials, the head of the United States Olympic Committee, and we all had breakfast. We walked out from our location in the village uh, through the village to where the commissary was. Ironically, walking right past this street called Conlystrasse, which was not a name that was basically very prominent in anybody's mind at the time. It was just another one of the walkways to get to another complex wing uh, where the Israelis happened to be housed and some other nations were housed in, the, in that area. It was exactly the same kind of housing that that we were in. It just we were just in a different corridor. And 
Everything looked great. And there greeted me in the car with all the IOC officials, a couple of them and the coaching staff were Heinz Klutmeyer, um, and, and Jerry and said, you know, do you know what's going on in the Olympic village? And all of us in the truck, including the IOC officials say, well, what do you mean? Well, history shows that sometime between, I don't know when, two and five in the morning, the Black September group broke into the village imposing as athletes, took over two of the apartments that the Israeli, uh, I think, weightlifting and fencing team were in. At that point in time, nobody knew anything about anything, zero from what was ever going on. But the press obviously must have picked up on this because they were basically told they can't be in the village anymore. And part of the reason was is that evidently at around before the sun came up, two of the athletes were killed, one of them thrown over the balcony. And some guard came by and happened to see the body and it was removed before the sun rose. So that there was nothing of any evidence uh, that anybody who was walking around and there were plenty of athletes. It was like, I don't know, eight, nine thousand athletes running around noticed anything that would be unusual. And, and this whole thing was basically unraveling at the time. Now, remind you, I got to the, the press center at nine o'clock. This is at about 10 or 10, 15. This is all unraveling. I mean, in an area where it's just like all around the Olympic Village. So now all of a sudden there's some police and the State Department uh, from the United States comes into this press center because they knew that it was pre-announced that that's where I was going to be. And they said, OK, we're going to take you guys all back, but it's going to be, a you know, by police escort. So we got back actually to the Olympic Village about 1030. The whole swim team now was waking up because they were at about two o'clock in the afternoon going to Garmish Park incursion for this big FINA gala, FINA being our organizing rules body of sport. So while I was in the Olympic Village, you know, the chancellor of Germany came to my room, said, we're taking care of trying to figure out what to do with you. Meanwhile, on the news, on the television, they said Mark had basically left for Italy. Then they said Mark had left for Sweden. And all along, I was just sitting in the in my room with my teammates going, they're going, what is going on? And so they just found out about it, you know, when I told them and all these police were there about what was going on. And then the rest of it's in the documentary, how I got out. So, I mean, those were the facts. There was, there was, there was nothing other than the way I just explained it happening, at least from my point of view and the people that surrounded me at the highest of levels at that time. So maybe you could finish up, Mark, by telling us, you know, you, you talked about how your accomplishment and the, um, terrorist attack kind of were happening simultaneously. And now we're sitting here 50 years later. And when we think about Munich in 1972, those are the two things that have really persisted is Black September and Mark Spitz. Um, you're a Jewish man. Um, you've, I know you've been to Israel a bunch of times. You've been, you went back to Munich for this um, documentary and have been there many times as well. What has it been like for you to be paired I'm imagining in your own mind, but also in our collective memory with that terrorist attack for, for all these years. Well, so the swimming events, uh, the Olympics uh, started um, in those years on a Saturday. Um, and the swimming competition started on a Monday, two days later, and ran for eight straight days to the following Monday. Um, the terrorists came into the village early Tuesday morning. And by the end of that evening, uh, 11 of them had, had been killed. My swimming competition was over. And by the end of that evening, I was in London with no knowledge of what had taken place. 
nor the actual two athletes that had been killed prior uh, to that time earlier in that morning. Only uh, in the morning that I find out um, what had taken place. I've been asked many times about, you know, would have it affected me had I continued to have to swim? And the answer is, of course, it would have affected me, but I'm not quite sure how it would have affected me because I think that um, the other athletes that had events for the following week, they went on, they competed, and they were very focused, obviously, because they had been trained to be focused. And I think the athletic competition was a success for not only them, but the Olympic movement. I have met with several of the wives of the slain athletes over the years, and they have always believed that their husbands would have wanted the Olympics to continue for the reason that they didn't want to have Black September get their way and prove their point. Unfortunately, it's been at the expense of 11 Israeli athletes, and the Olympic Games has taken on a posture of having to safeguard not only the athletes in future Olympic Games, but the spectators, the city, the citizens of the city, um, and the athletes, uh, I mean, the, the trainers and the officials. And they've done a great job. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, my accomplishments will always be tied to the tragedies that happened in Munich, which was basically a coming of age and loss of innocence, to be honest with you, with the Olympic Games and for what principles it stood for. But they've basically done a great job of continuing on. I'm not proud that I'm associated with such a tragedy, but I've embraced it because that's something that just happened. And um, I categorically, 50 years later, I'm still talking about it um, and questioning. I think we learned from being able to be in the present and reflect on the past. I think the past has been great for sports in general. Certainly Olympic sports have turned into professionalism after 1988. That's how we got the dream team to show up at the Olympics in Barcelona. One thing for sure, had the rules been different then, like they are today, what have I competed? Certainly, my sponsors would have wanted me to do so, and I would have gone to the Montreal Olympic Games, and none of my world records have been broken um, until after five or six years after I had retired in 1972. But I wouldn't have been chasing a Mark Spitz, because I was Mark Spitz, and I wouldn't have swum in as many events, and I wouldn't have had this illustrious idea that I could go out there and, and win 28 medals over the next five Olympic Games. That was not something that was a vision to me. I feel very responsible and proud that I created a vision for somebody yet not even born to want to match what I had done and then surpass that. And that's Michael Phelps. So in the same breath, he is who he is, is because he broke my records. And, and I, I'm proud to have been a part of that. The documentary is 72, A Gathering of Champions. It's directed by Jonathan Hawk. There are four episodes, and you can watch them now on olympics.com. They're going to debut on next month on Peacock. It's been a real pleasure having Mark Spitz with us to talk about it and his career. Mark, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. I do not want to say, as we start After Balls, that this is Vincent's last show, because we're going to have him on as much as he wants to be on. Don't worry, Vincent, you're going to be sick of us asking. <laughs> um, but this is the end of his uninterrupted run of greatness. 
And so to honor him, I wanted to name this week's after balls after the best Vincent in sports history, non-Cunningham division. And that is mm. Fred, that is Fred Vinson, the MVP of the 1993-94 Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets basketball team. He's an NBA veteran, having played a handful of games for the Atlanta Hawks and the Seattle Supersonics. This is the most Vincent? We haven't gotten to it yet. Oh, okay. Sorry. The, All right. the most important part. Most famously, at least for me, he's a longtime assistant coach for the Hornets and now the Pelicans, where he's known as the best shot doctor in the entire NBA. If you wow. need any evidence to support this claim, he is the guy who made Lonzo Ball into an elite three-point shooter, a guy who now shoots more, more than 40%. And we remember how broken Lonzo's... Uh, shot was when he came into UCLA. As Lonzo explained to The Athletic, I came in and my shot wasn't working. Pretty much all the credit goes to Fred. That Vincent, like this Vincent, just makes everyone around him better, including this week when he is treating us to a farewell after ball. So Vincent, what is your Fred Vincent? My Fred Vincent... And by the way, Fred Vinson, the ship USS Carl Vinson, and of course, Randall Cunningham are the three, like, those are the search terms that always come up, like, when I, whenever I indulge in self-Google. So I'm, I'm right, <laughs> I'm right there with you. But my Fred Vinson is a tribute to one of my favorite athletes, Manu Ginobili, who was recently inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. I've always thought that the spiritual opening of the NBA season comes not in October when the games start, but in September. When a small class of fortunate honorees gathers to be inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. It's a celebration of basketball's history, culture, and unforgettable personalities that never fails to get me excited. This class uh, of inductees, this year's class, included people like Del Harris, Tim Hardaway, my favorite crossover artist of all time, Swin Cash, Lindsey Whalen. Uh, but it was headlined, I think it's fair to say, by the great San Antonio Spur and Argentinian national Manu Ginobili. Now, this might have been the least publicized Hall of Fame ceremony that I can remember. Like nobody talked about it as far as I I saw. But before it fades, I do want to give us a tribute to Ginobili, who I'm pretty sure is the great pride of Argentina. Lionel Messi, uh, the venerable Pope Francis. I guess those guys have cases to make. All right. Uh, the, the ficciones of Borges rocked my undergraduate world. It's true. But for me, the great ambassador of the baby blue and white, our sister to the south, will always be Manu Ginobili. Back in 2018, when he retired, and here you'll have to allow me the pleasure of self-citation, I wrote this, that Ginobili never seemed, quote, uh, quote, never seemed to step onto the court with a fully fleshed out plan or to have decided on a move, whether to shoot, to dribble, or to zing some oddball pass, fishy with English, until he was already partway through the motion that made it possible. He was a wild, bouncy presence with long black hair that traced a kind of wake as he ran. His legs, especially during his impossible forays toward the basket, would shoot him four or five feet forward at a time. So with an opposing guard tied to his hip, he'd make a little gesture toward the baseline that would somehow leave him nearly out of bounds, then manage a half-balanced catapult in the opposite direction. It was all contingency and impromptu solution to a problem that had risen in the heat of a moment, end quote. Now, what I didn't say in that piece, because I didn't want to turn it into some hectoring manifesto of my own, is that Ginobili embodied the thing that I care about most in sports, 
which is style. We know the rudiments of basketball on offense. You shoot, you dribble, you pass, you make or you miss, you get to your spot or you get stripped. You turn your fleeting hint of vision into a sound pass or you cough the ball up. But Ginobili managed to make each of these simple, not easy, but simple actions add up to something sleek, cool, irreproducible, and even slightly off kilter. He was like a Lamborghini speeding down a country road. Scores are great. Stats, essential. Wins, just peachy. But the reason to watch sports is to see something that makes the numbers melt away. Manu did that in spades. He improvised his way into my heart and many others. He also led an Argentinian Olympic team that won gold in 2004. He beat one of my other favorite players, Stefan Marbury. God bless him. We will not talk about him today. Uh, but if Borges, the aforementioned Borges, was the grandfather of the so-called Latin American boom of novelists like Cortázar and Marquez and Fuentes, Manu was the driving force of what became known as the golden generation in Argentinian hoops. He led that 04 national team with almost 20 points a game. Of course, he was an NBA all-star. And before he ever set foot stateside, he had already won titles in Italy and in the EuroLeague. Salient to today, though, he was also famously, throughout all this excellent, a sixth man for the Spurs, a guy who came off the bench and when duty called. The only sixth man I've ever admired with equal ardor is the great Nick Anthony Mason. Uh, I can't help but make the connection here that I've been a bench player on Hang Up for a good portion of this summer and that this will be my last show for a while. Now, am I comparing myself to a guy that I just basically called the greatest Argentinian in history, the equal or better of <laughs> Borges and the Pope? Am I saying that I belong in the Sports Podcasting Hall of Fame? Am I the great pride and flickering hope of my own fragile nation? No, 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 of course not. That's for others to say and for me to humbly accept. All I mean is that I've had a great time chatting with you guys. I'll see you down the road. Like Manu, you have a lot of style and improvisatory grace. So shout out to you. Shout out to your wonderful listeners. And shout out with much love to NBA Hall of Famer Manu Ginobili. Well, that was that that was delightful, Vincent, and uh, I'm I'm you know so glad that you were able to fill in. And actually, you know, I would like to make the argument that you're drastically underselling your contributions to this. And I promise this is not because I'm a Houston hater. I mean, I'm a Houston <laughs> hater, but I mean, I would just like to keep in mind that Manu Ginobili only made two All Star teams. You know who else? A <laughs> two time NBA All Stars, uh, Luol Ding. Uh, oh. Zomo Betty, Roy <laughs> Hibbert, Zadrinus Elgoskis. Wait, wait, wait. Wow. Yeah. Are you just, did you just say Zomo Beatty's name in a, in a pejorative sense? Well, I'm just, no, well, I'm just saying, I mean, I didn't mean All he a, means to this podcast. All, all, look, I, look, what I'm saying, <laughs> I, I need to wake you up. I need to wake you up. I'm just saying, I mean, I just, I feel like. Vincent, you've done so much more than Manu Ginobili has done. No, maybe some. You wow. Know, Manu, Manu, Manu has, you know, look, he's been great for the growth of the, the international game, all that good stuff. But like, let's just, you know, the Hall of Fame thing. Let's just, I mean, come on. Kevin, RIP Kevin Duckworth, wow. two time NBA All Star. Did he make the, did he make the, uh, did he make the Hall of Fame too? Or did, I don't, did he Anto lead an Anto Olympic Anto team to Anto gold? Anto Anton Jameson, two time <laughs> um, <laughs> fat lever, who I remember being really good. Wow. Uh, this is taking a, a dramatic turn. I anyway, thought we were just going to go around. I didn't mean to pick at him, but I'm just saying. I'm just like, I thought we were just going to go around. I thought we were just going to go around. Two time Jim Paxson, two time NBA All Star. Great. Go around. Wow. Good, praising each other. Congratulations, Manu. And then All there's right, just anyway, this like sorry. drive by attack on Zelmo Beatty, which is like cutting, cutting, <laughs> cutting me to cutting me to my core. So, I don't know. Sorry, he got caught up. 
Sorry, I got I caught up in that. I don't know what's Zelda. I don't know what's going on here, but I would say this. Um <laughs> <laughs> should we rename the Euro step the RG step? Just, you know, to what? to really <laughs> Yeah. I think really no. cement his place. He's I the think one who popularized. <laughs> no. He's the he's the one who popularized the Eurostep. I I did make that argument in in the piece that I quoted from a little bit. And also, Joel doesn't care about style. He just cares about rings. The, <laughs> the other thing I remember about Ginobili that was like the coolest thing is how he's the first guy I remember. And I'm sure you can mention people who who did it first. But he's the first guy I remember consistently doing the thing where he would get ISOed on somebody and then back off. To like mm-hmm. half court, dribble back to mm-hmm. half court so he could get more of a running start so he could like more effectively roast them. That was very cool. He was also mm-hmm. one of the first, I mean, and maybe this goes to Joel's slanderous point, also one of the first great floppers. It's true. that <laughs> That is, that's written in history. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't find much enjoyable about watching Manu Ginobili play and was very happy that, you know, all the times the Lakers beat them or whatever. But uh, wow, this good, is, this is really rough. I will use better, uh, quote, <laughs> I think I heard this from you. Quote, better than Ginobili will be on the back of uh, my novel when it comes out. That I, I, I'm it's taking true, that yeah. blurb away from this. But otherwise, <laughs> I, I do not like any of the rest of the stuff. But if it's, if, it's to, it's, if it's to puff me up, I'll take it. Hey, look, man. You should, you, should, you should take it. You are how good you think Manu Ginobili is. Let's say wow. that. Wow. 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 <laughs> I'll take it. That is our show for today. Our producers this week were Kevin Bendis and Anna Rubinova. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, Stefan Fatsis, and Vincent Cunningham. Hey, you know what? Real quick before you go, Josh, two-time All-Star, Stefan Marbury. Go ahead. All right. You can end it there. Wow. I'm going to say this part very clearly. So no, so no, there will be no mistake. <laughs> Remember Zelmo Baby. <laughs> and thanks for listening. And now it is time for our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. Slate Plus members, thank you so much for your support. And Mark Spitz is back with us. Hey, Mark. Hi. I wanted to ask you about a couple things that you mentioned during our conversation. One is that um, the the where you were situated and where these Olympics were situated in sort of the arc of sports history, this really was at the cusp of like commercialization of the Olympics more broadly, the IOC, networks, sponsors. And what you wound up doing, cashing in on these games and ending your career because you really had no other choice, um, sort of set the 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 template for um post-Olympics. Um, marketing and success. I mean, it, it struck me, you said it a couple times in our conversation that like you anticipated retiring because you had to get on with your life. There couldn't be four, eight or 12 more years of swimming for you. Yeah. I mean, in one sense, I guess I was a pioneer. I mean, anybody that had been in the Olympic games along with me in 1968 and 1972 planned to retire. People in the past had retired. I mean, we had a college season. Um, ironically, my college four years of eligibility ended ironically on an Olympic year. Um, so if it ended the year before, I would have actually continued on swimming. Um, or I would have had to go one more year or two more years in college, you know, depending on 
how that, how that worked out. Um, so yeah, uh, I mean, you know, Madison Avenue was waiting for me, I guess. I mean, that mustache, I think helped in some of the mystique of like that had never been done before. I mean, he looked like a swimmer with long hair and different than anybody else. Um, I think that all helped. Um, and I think that that became, um, a blueprint for the Olympic games in Montreal, the following four years. Um, I think that, um, the world was waiting for not necessarily another Mark Spitz, but somebody that, oh, wow, you know, let's see who we can, you know, uh, latch on to. And, and that person basically became Bruce Jenner. Um, and, but there were a lot of other great performances. I mean, the likes of Carl Lewis was just beginning in track and field. Um, but we, we, we noticed him. Well, we, we, we failed to notice him in 1980 because we boycotted the Olympics, but in 1984, which was his, uh, debut to speak of uh he wins four gold medals carl so he became the darling of the 1984 olympic games and so we we somehow i think want to have a new star um that comes from the olympic games that uh that the world can latch on or americans can become very jingoistic and latch on to somebody that they identify with and i think that's great for young kids to aspire to want to be just like that person whoever it might be so i was actually sort of the beginning of that as a pioneer and as somebody who I guess, kind of breached the ideal of amateurism. You came in for a lot of criticism of people saying that you were money grubbing, I guess. Um, what is, what do you remember about that criticism and did any of it sting you at all? I'm not too aware of, to be honest with you, about any of that sort of criticism. I mean, it might be attributed to jealousy, perhaps. You know, I have no idea. Um, I mean, I certainly wasn't taking a contract away from any one of the athletes that were in my Olympic Games. I mean, I wasn't grabbing if there was an X amount of dollars out there to be had. Um, you know, was I getting 90% of it or was I getting 20% of it? I mean, there was no way to make a judge call, judgment call that way. So I'm not quite sure if that information is as accurate other than just the sensationalism of just mentioning it. But I think that the reality is, is that, um, there is some value, um, that I think is placed on some companies wanting to be associated with the likes of an Olympic athlete and their success. I think that alludes to the illusion that their products represent something of similar nature um, and can benefit their audience. Um, I think that's a benefit to all of us who are Olympians that we can able to cash in on some of this. I mean, certainly there's a lot of sponsors that support the Olympic movement um, and the athletes don't get any of that money. Matter of fact, just the Olympic movement, the United States Olympic Committee goes out there and really tries to... Uh, to, to foster and, and to, to cultivate, uh, you know, sponsorships, you know, to keep the movement, you know, one well greased and oiled and so that they can pay for administrative bodies to basically have the United States Olympic Committee, you know, housed at Colorado Springs and all the things that they do in a real positive way. So I think that professionalism has actually skyrocketed. So it'd be a big dollar event. Uh, and each natural governing body of sport, like the U.S., I mean, the International Track Federation, the Swimming Federation, the Gymnastics Federation, all seem to be a scavenger of these opportunities financially. And so the athletes are the ones that actually get the least carve out, um, so to speak, of that profit. And so I'm an advocate that, uh, you know, I've always, I mean, I told Juan Antonio Samaranch, who was the president of the International Olympic Committee, Years ago in 1997, 
I was there actually as a consultant for the picking of the cities that they were eventually going to pick for the Olympic host city, which turned out to be Athens at the time for 2004, but this was in 1997. And I sat there and I said to him in front of Jean-Claude Keeley, uh, Stefan Edberg and Bjorn Borg, I says, why don't you just raise another $200 million and divide it amongst the 250 contested sports? And he said, why would I do that? He said, I said, well, first of all, it'd be real simple to do because you're raising a billion dollars anyway. I said, so what's another 20%? I said, and, and the companies would be more than happy to do that if, in fact, they knew that you could actually distribute it to the athletes. And why? Is because you wouldn't get Russia to boycott the Olympic Games because they win about 35% of all the medals and they'd come for their 35% of the take of the $200 million and you wouldn't have these issues. Well, that fell on deaf ears. And it's still on deaf ears and the athletes aren't participating in any of that sort of stipend that the Olympic Committee has. Um, and it's unfair for the athletes. So I've been always a very support, a supporter of the fact that the athletes should be taking a percentage of, of this. Certainly the United States Olympic Committee takes a percentage of it. And so does the German Olympic Committee take a percentage of it. Um, um, because they're providing the athletes to participate under this very interesting regime. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. When you look at the, the modern Olympics and the athletes who have gone on to this sort of level of superstardom that you experienced, um, Simone Biles, Michael Phelps, they've all talked about mental health issues, stress on their, on, on their, their bodies and their brains. The way you discuss you know, your career, it sounds like you could have used what, and you said it when we were talking earlier, a sports psychologist. Um, to what do you attribute the sort of changes in, in Olympic sports? I mean, the athletes are more better compensated. They are able to train full time. And watching this documentary, there's a sense of almost innocence. You worked, you busted your ass and you worked incredibly hard, but it was really to an end point. Um, you knew that you were done at 22 and that you had to, if you were going to cash in, you couldn't keep swimming. And then it sounds like in your mind, you were done regardless. Um, when you look at the modern sort of Olympic movement and, and the, the way these superstars evolve, what do you think? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things that come to mind, what I think. I mean, first of all, um, my talking about sports psychologists, um, I think I was my own psychologist. So I certainly didn't suffer from not having some professional, probably no less than I knew. It's, I think, in retrospect, what I had actually learned for myself and what people have observed of me became sort of a model of how people might judge themselves by. And these these experts and psychologists to say, well, here's what Mark Spitz must have gone through, even though I've never been interviewed by any of them. The reality is, is that it's just looking at facts and then trying to regurgitate the analytics of it to make sense of it. Um, so uh, there's there's an old saying that says that if you take if you keep if you if you spend too much time keeping score, who's playing the game? And the, I'll, I think we get hung up in a lot of that statistical uh, analytics. Um, I think that what we see here is an athlete that has a tremendous amount of more responsibility. One, he does have to answer to his his contractual obligations. I didn't have contractual obligations. That is time consuming. And that type of time consumption is going to interfere with training, perhaps. Um, it can interfere with your own psyche as to how important you really think and view yourself. <laughs> and I think that um, there's a lesson to be learned from that. I don't know what that lesson is, but it's at least being able to cope. Um, so I moved on 
because that was what my choice had to be because there was no other example of any other path and road that I was to take to basically further my career and stay in the sport. So I didn't have these issues with a, a mental breakdown because I wasn't still having to compete under the stress of having to compete and then actually competing one extra two times that I shouldn't have, for an example. And a lot of athletes never get to that pinnacle or are satisfied with the pinnacle that they've set for themselves. I mean, I swam in the Olympic Games and I've talked to the people and just nauseam about this. I swam in the events that I could win the gold medal in. I did not swim in the events that I could medal in. I could have swum in three more events. I was the second fastest uh, swimmer um, in the backstroke events. Um, um, I was uh, one time the world record holder, which was my first world record in the 400 meter freestyle, but I elected not to swim in all these events. So my mind was swim in the events that I held the world record in, compete in the ones that I could win a gold medal at the most important event for an amateur athlete at that time was for me, the Olympic Games. And it still is for the swim, a swimmer to go to the Olympic Games. That's the pinnacle of our of our competitions, the Super Bowl, almost every four years, and win a gold medal. And I did that. So I literally walked away with no stone unturned of great gratification and success. And oh, and by the way, I broke a world record in each of those events, which was just an added bonus. So I could co I can't sit back and say I should have swum another year or another two years to do what I actually failed to accomplish. I think a lot of athletes continue to try to actually achieve one more step up that ladder. And that's where they get hung up and being a tremendous amount of disappointments. It's quite obvious to me that and you had mentioned Simone Biles, and then now we have Caleb Dressel. They they they, they went to the well. I think almost one too many times without having to address, I personally need to take a rest and gather my thoughts of what and how the importance is of what I'm creating for myself and these tremendous challenges that these athletes have. And so that's why we're seeing the ones at the top having these sort of, I call it timeouts. And I think they're entitled to those timeouts. I mean, I don't believe that there's any contract that any of these athletes have ever signed that says you must compete at all of these different types of athletic events that became your namesake. Now, there are probably incentives for them in competing at those uh, types of events. Uh, if they break a world record, they might make more money. Um, if they show up, they might make more money. But the fact is, is that after a while, they have to think of themselves. So I grew up in an era that I didn't have those responsibilities placed on my shoulders. And therefore, I don't find that anybody from my era is really having these sort of breakdowns. Now, have I felt depressed over the last 50 years? Yeah, but it had nothing to do with being an athlete. You know, it could be just with living life and experiencing the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of of, of life experiences in, in that journey. Um, but the athletes are not anybody special out of a fairy tale. They have to be able to deal with these day-to-day -day sort of things that happen. And so I take my hat off to them and I, I have an empathy and I have a, a feeling for what they're going through. In other words, rather than reach in and pull them out of the hole that they think that they've gotten into and say, it's okay, let's go compete again. I would prefer to jump in the hole with them and look them in the face and say, hey, I kind of know what you're going through. Um, do you have any suggestions? Doesn't matter what their suggestions are, but work with somebody to say, hey, it's okay to feel this way. Um, and whatever and how you feel you can get out of this hole, I support you, you know, support them and be with them. And that's, to, that's, that's what I think that we as uh, uh, people that have gone through this can basically convey to anybody who's a youngster who wants to get into sports. 
Um, it, it all looks glorious, you know, from your bank book, you know, and your checking account and your savings account and the kind of car that you drive. But at, after a while, it's like, how many more cars do you need? And how many more dollars do you, do you need? And that compulsion that drives people for some really religious way almost, um, uh, can get in the way of your mental health. And, and so this is something that is not going to go away. And I think as time goes on and our lives become more complicated, I think, I think we're going to see more of this. Mark Spitz, thank you again for coming on the program. And everybody check out the documentary 72, A Gathering of Champions, directed by Jonathan Hawk. Mark, thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Slate Plus members. We'll be back next week with more.